Contracast. My name's Cat Boyd, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host David Jameson. I'm doing very well. Before you ask, <laughs> the old tradition. Um, yeah, at the end of a, a long day here. Uh, it's always strange with these. Uh, we've got an international guest on the on the call, and uh, it's always strange to think they are speaking to us uh, early in the afternoon before they are completely wrecked by the day's labels, but. Uh, I'm pretty right. <laughs> um, well, as David said, we're joined today with Bhaskar Sankara, who is the editor of the US-based online magazine, Bakabin, which I'm sure plenty of our listeners are readers of as well. It's nice to have you on, Bhaskar. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm already wrecked. It's it's 2 p.m. here. But, uh, my, my day basically ends at, at 1.30. I'm like, I'm done for the day. I'm just waiting, counting the hours. Um, I'm I'm feeling really really bummed out about coronavirus today. To be honest, it's just it's just too much. Like we, I, I think like this is now David. Is this our fourth full lockdown, like stay at home order? Like I think this is the fourth. To be honest, I've lost track. Yeah, it's um, impossible to say. Britain impossible. is basically plague island now. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible there um, with this new variant, too, which has apparently just landed in uh, some parts of the U.S. as well. So we have that to look forward to. That's our gift. You're very to welcome. Mm. Yeah, very welcome. Special relationship. <laughs> I, I, I was blaming the English for that. So <laughs> if you want to take responsibility, that's OK. <laughs> um, no, well, they're the diseased ones. We'll leave it with them. Moving on, <laughs> moving on. Um, Before Bashka came on, uh, he said um, for once, and I'm sure it was sarcasm, uh, the whole world is discussing America um, because, of course, Britain is a country completely colonised with concerns about American politics, the American political idiom, American cultural wars, uh, completely colonised us uh, after, you know, several hundred years after our... Uh, initial colonization of the American continent, North American. Um, but um, of course, it is the final act of Trump the movie. Uh, and uh, uh, explosive. Um, Jacobin, uh, I think, has like been one of the soundest voices on what's gone on there. I mean, Jacobin aside that the, um, the articles that I've read that you've published uh, have, have been kind of very sober, uh, you know, looked at the situation in the round, tried to, you know, pick out the kind of truth from the hysteria. Um, but most of the American media I've followed over the last few days, to be honest, has been sort of concerning levels of paranoia about what's going on in the United States, about, you know, this idea that it was an attempted coup or an attempted insurrection or so on, which to me, just doesn't, you know, match up with reality. Um, what is your just general sense of what's going on over there and, and why this sort of hysteria? Well, I, I think to begin with, the safest thing to do when you're in media is to always overstate a threat um, because very few people go back and say, oh, well, this journalist said that Trump would use a nuclear weapon like uh, because that was that was definitely around there um this one had this prediction or this one had this and and the more hyperbolic um you could be kind of the better right it drives in the short-term engagement in the long term 
no one really cares. And I think we're seeing the rise of these uh, moral panics on both left and right, where people engage in the most heated rhetoric possible. Um, then tempers cool down. Uh, people take more sober level have an analysis a couple weeks later, but they never go back to acknowledge that maybe they overstepped or over or you know overstated something. And uh, I think the medium of social media has a lot to do with it. I've kind of resisted this analysis because it seems to me not especially materialist, but um, it, it I, I, I can't, can't come up with another uh, explanation. I definitely think that there's a uh, fringe of US politics, a pretty large fringe on the far right that is increasingly uh, violent, which is quite paranoid, which uh, has been emboldened by Donald Trump. Uh, he certainly fanned the flames of what happened, and obviously he won't face any consequences for it. Meanwhile, a lot of the idiots that he duped who were engaged in this will be arrested and have no possibility of job prospects. A couple of them died and, you know, whatever else. So that's that's the usual norm of, of U.S. politics and world politics, which the elite get away with everything and other people pay the pay the consequences. So I don't want to downplay uh, the significance of what happened from the standpoint of the, you know, human uh, loss of life, um, the threats to especially left wing uh, Congress people, um, certainly AOC and other left wing members of Congress felt like their life was in danger and, and threatened. I don't know all the details. All of it hasn't come out in the investigation, but I think it's very safe to take them at, at the word. Um, but I think if you were to consider this, I, I think it's overstepping to, to call it a, a coup. And I don't even mean at the semantic level. I just mean, what was the program? Did they try to seize a building or did they try to seize the uh, levers of power? And I really think it was something of the the former, like a violent far right riot that took a lot of life and obviously was meant to threaten a democracy, a democratic process, but yeah. I don't think it was meant to install a different regime. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would generally agree with that. I mean, I think that my concern is, and David is right uh, when he says that, um, we are, I mean, our media is obsessed with American politics, the saturation of um, not just news about the Capitol, but the reaction to it. So, um, you know, our first minister in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, um, is a big fan of some of um, the, the Democratic Party's um, big players, um, Hillary Clinton being one of them. Um, so you know she's got this real sort of like Hillary Clinton-esque style to her um, but I mean that's really no surprise that we talk about American politics a lot I think that the thing that I find most concerning about what happens at the Capitol is the the real panic around this being a, like a fascist coup um, I think that that's like genuinely really unhelpful language that I've seen on Twitter. I think that you're right um, that social media does encourage this type of like hot take behavior. Um, I mean, I think that if people are taking, you know, 
24-48 hours to really digest news events and then tweet about it they shouldn't be slammed for it and that's I mean I definitely saw people saying um you know echoes of silence from the quote Trump is not a fascist crew and which I think was a reference to you David actually (laughs) Um, but yeah I mean I think that I think you're right. I think it's a it's a violent right wing um, attempt to to occupy a building and disrupt a democratic process. It's not an attempt to you know seize the levers of power. See though, what I test though is um, you know it was people tweeting and, and on social media and you often get those sort of hysterical responses and so on. But it did have a degree of inter- um, institutional. I mean, I've never seen the BBC covering an issue like they did this one, right? Which is not, of course, to lionize the BBC or pretend that it's got these high standards that, that no one else has and so on. But for 48 hours after the storming of the uh, the building, um, the BBC's headlines, and I don't mean the guests, just the guests they had on, though they were also saying this was an attempted coup, there was an attempted overthrow of American democracy. The actual news readers on the hour were saying there was an attempt to in the United States. And I really had this feel of like, no one actually believes this. No one who is saying this really thinks that there was an attempt to overthrow the American state by, a, you know, a few thousands, you know, most of them, you know, real kind of crazies, real paranoia cases um, without any kind of plan or platform or whatever. I seriously doubt, to be honest, Trump even, um, as soon as he realized the implications for him of what was going on in, in the Capitol building, I doubt he even really wanted it. Um, I doubt that it had much kind of institutional support at all in the in the Republican Party, um, but that you, you saw that obviously on the BBC, obviously on CNN, which has lost it, um, but also then of course uh, there was the whole campaign on social me- media to remove Trump and lots of kind of Q and on people and and all this kind of stuff. So this also did actually have some, like institutional heft behind. Yeah, I think if anything was a reminder of the stability of a lot of American Republican, small R Republican institutions, and that immediately this was denounced across the board by the media uh, representatives who were kind of running away from it happening. Trump's response to me just further reinforced the fact that this is a um, just a deeply uh, nihilistic, megalomaniac kind of figure. Uh, His immediate response was to complain that his supporters on the TV looked like they were low class. He was, they looked ugly, they looked low class. And this is obviously the mind of a rich person who thinks in terms of only um, aesthetics. And that's, that's definitely the thing he has in common with, with strains of of fascism and the right, Um, this, this lionization. of of style over over uh, program um, of tactics over over program, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think this showed how stable and how unified a certain consensus is in the United States. I think the reason to be a little bit more alarmed is that this could be the prelude to something else. Now, the media has been talking about it using that language prelude, as in this movement directly will lead to um, a overthrow of American democracy in 15, 20 years. I don't mean that. What I mean is that this is a sign of growing destabilization. It's a sign that uh, certain norms are being transgressed, that the legitimacy of the state is being transgressed, and, and maybe that'll 
uh, be uh, a bad thing if, if things don't restabilize in the future. I think when it comes to left strategy, the question is twofold. Now, one is, is this all a distraction from the fact that our enemy number one is Joe Biden starting in about a week? Uh, Joe Biden's going to be the head of the U.S. state, and he's no friend of the left. He's no friend of our agenda. And if we're going to get anything passed under a Biden administration with the Democrats uh, with control of government, it's going to be through creating an opposition movement. And tied to that, how do we actually defeat the right in the long run? Well, that's through presenting an alternative program. If this becomes a battle about restoring American democracy, restoring the integrity of American democratic institutions, then we're talking about going back to 2015, back to 2016. We're not talking about building an actual alternative. We're not talking about the issues in which we are not in agreement with mainstream Democrats on, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, all these other programmatic points, because we are in agreement at least about, you know, if I'd rather have bourgeois democracy than no democracy at all. I think every single socialist in America would agree with, with that, but that only gets us so far. And if we pretend like this is a fringe view in which the socialist left needs to mobilize all of its resources, we're ignoring the fact this is a view embraced by 95% of the US population and all, uh, rightly, all establishment forces in the US. Yeah, I think this is the really interesting point because, I mean, one of the features of, of kind of Trumpism in recent years is um, it's had the capacity points to contain left-wing criticisms of the American elite, you know, in, in, in a certain way. I mean, it seems to... You have a phenomenon where around the world now, this isn't even just true in the United States, a certain attitude to the right uh, is on the left, you know, to stop it um, engaging in a more like, you know, as you say, systematic, you know, pro programmatic assault upon uh, the, the sort of liberal centre. France was the classic case of this. So uh, Mélenchon um, was endlessly told uh, that, you know, he... <laughs> He must get out of the way and form an alliance with, you know, tell his, his voters to support Macron against Le Pen. And, you know, Le Penism is a tradition in France which, you know, has a lineage, an actual direct lineage back to a genuine, you know, fascist dictatorship um, and so on. Um, so there's always this tension where you can use anti, you know, an anti fascist ana analysis as an actual kind of combat orientation against dangerous elements of the right, or it can be used. Uh, as a kind of, you know, by kind of systemic politicians to uh, to to kind of you know cut the horns off the uh, the radical left. Um, but so what I wanted to ask you on in in those terms is, I mean, do you do you are you hopeful that there will be that transition from this slightly manufactured state of emergency in American politics right now to a situation where um, the left can reorientate in a, in a criticism of the, the kind of liberal center? I would say that a lot of the main forces on the left, from our politicians to a lot of our media outlets, uh, seem to be in a mood of coalition. Now, I'm not against coalition in principle, but if the left in the US isn't aware of our weakness, then we actually think that we have social forces in order to go in a coalition with something. So in other words, if we were in a 
multi-party parliamentary system and we had the equivalent of 10, 15, 20% of the vote, like I think we would have at a minimum if the Bernie Krat wing of American politics had had its own party in a different sort of political system, then it might make sense to say, we should go and provide support to a Biden government on certain terms or whatever else. Uh, but we're not in that kind of system. And we are also not in that position where we have organized social forces of our own. So part of our, our, our the key is to uh, build our own institutions, to build our own profile as outsider, left populist, distinct from the Democratic Party. I think that a lot of the focus on impeachment from not just the squad, but from uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has the potential to just make us sound like the most militant Democrats in the room. So in other words, if um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are pushing for impeachment and pushing for all these things, well, Biden, that while Bernie and, and the squad are basically just pushing for it harder, that seems to be um, the emphasis. So we don't want, in other words, in the popular imagination, a view of the left in the United States as just being more strident, more hyper-liberal Democrats. We want a view of the left in the United States, like what was emerging through the Bernie Sanders campaigns, as being distinct at a programmatic level and also at the level of, of rhetoric being distinct in pursuing a kind of working class rhetoric. If anything, I think the most savvy person in US politics about how to be very critical about what happened, be very anti-Trump, but be wary of focusing too much on Trump and impeachment has actually been Joe Biden. Like I think there's a lot about Biden's rhetoric that reflects the fact that he's aware of what working class voters want at a rhetorical level, even though he's not gonna deliver it at a programmatic uh, level. Yeah, I think that that's dead interesting. I have wondered like, I mean, who is that rhetoric for when it's from Bernie or the squad around impeachment? Like who is that actually trying to speak to? Um, I mean, I've been a big fan of Bernie um, his movement, the the program that he put forward as well in both of his, um, you know, internal elections and the primaries. Um, but I do, I think that there is some, there's some merit to the argument about the United Front that Bernie played along with the United Front against Trump, the idea that um, in the selection for the Democratic candidate, that Trump had to go at any cost um, and if any cost is worth bearing, then it would be Joe Biden. Um, and I think that the building of that united front and that coalition, like the quote unquote anti-fascist struggle against Trump really kind of allowed Bernie Sanders to be in some way undermined by the anti-fascist rhetoric. Um, I think that there's a real concern that some of the, the political purpose around the, you know, Trump out at any cost anti-fascism is really to discipline the left so that when there is a united front and the left are rallying around um, the, the most powerful democratic pole in society that, you know, in this case is the, the very rich centrist option and um, that that's, that it's kind of used as a, as a point of leverage. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, that that coalition and that united front can, 
it's not necessarily helpful for a left populist program. Yeah, I mean, I think that that given the structure of US politics, voting for Joe Biden in a swing state was absolutely the right tactical vote to do. But there was always a difference between tactical voting and advocating tactical votes and going out and spending institutional resources canvassing for Joe Biden, as opposed to canvassing for down ballot candidates and for our particular programs. Like we'll canvass, we as in DSA, will canvass for any candidate, let's say, who supports Medicare for all and supports this and, and this priority. Um, and obviously if you're rallying people down ballot that has the effect of increasing votes for Joe Biden because people don't often split split tickets. But the premise of this, even for people advocating a much more fortright you know, endorse Joe Biden, spend resources trying to get Joe Biden ele elected, was that once he was elected, we would then quickly pivot to opposition. So that remains to be to be seen. I think that a lot of the premise of what AOC and other members of the, the squad are doing is that they are winning small victories for people behind the scenes. Like no one goes into this thinking, I'm going to sell out and just joining coalition with our, our enemies. People go into it thinking, I'm going to deliver some victories and I'm navigating this inside outside strategy. Uh, and therein lies, I think the danger, which we'll have to see how it plays out of a co-optation where the squad, um, Bernie, don't actually need the existing left. They're kind of figures onto themselves, um, but they also don't have any institutional base really. So this is the dilemma that we've seen with a lot of populist experiments around the world. And I think those of us on the socialist left trying to use these electoral campaigns to jumpstart a different process of base building, a different process of organizing, will have to grapple with that fact that, you know, the, the dilemma, I guess, of populism all around the world, which is that everything is hollowed out. All we have is these these big candidates. We have no mechanism to discipline these candidates and they have no real incentive to be disciplined. They're just trying to win gains as they can for their constituents, I think in good faith. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, we just have to, I think, seriously assess how, what we got from this wave of struggle in the last 10 years. I've been among the most optimistic people about what happened over the last 10 years, but what it'll take to jumpstart a new wave of struggle in the last in the next 10 years. And I think this cycle, which began with Occupy, which began with um, Podemos and the movements in Spain and the Arab Spring and and uh, whatever else is more or less coming to a close all around uh, the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, leads us on to the kind of um, the thesis that you developed uh, about class struggle, uh, social democracy. Um, I was rereading this, some of this stuff in, in preparation for the discussion today, and I thought it was in, a couple of things really interested me. One was you mentioned um, that Bernie Sanders came from like uh, comes from a certain tradition, and this wasn't always particularly understood uh, on the kind of left wing of the Democratic Party. I remember you having a debate with someone about Elizabeth Warren, uh, and you were kind of pointing out some of the differences between Biden and Warren, given that they seem to be so rhetorically close. And you were sort of saying you've got all the sort of master's to policy positions 
and understands the, the context for these, these two different candidates. And Sanders comes from a, a longer kind of populist socialist tradition in American society. Um, on, I've got a couple of questions for you. One on, on AOC, who just mentioned, and yes, of course, the, the main concern here is like the institutional pressures that politicians feel, particularly when they don't necessarily have a strong institutional counter pressure like from mobilizations or trade unions or whatever but isn't a factor there um also that uh, a younger generation of the left don't necessarily have that those kind of in, those kind of traditions uh, that you spoke about in regards to sanders who also has the benefit it must be said of like a long career in activist politics and a, and a longer perspective that, that that gives some people but another point that you made that I thought was really interesting is um, that with someone like Sanders, and you could say this for some of the other experiments as well, like Corbynism, uh, you know, kind of like, it's a bit different with things like Syriza and so on. But, you know, the difference with social democracy today uh, that should distinguish it from debates that you get, sometimes in kind of like sectarian left corners, you get people who say, I mean, we've all seen it how can you back Bernie Sanders or how can you back Jeremy Corbyn? Don't you know that the Social Democrats killed Rosa Luxemburg and all this kind of like embarrassing uh, stuff? The point that's being missed is this is 2020 and the Social Democratic kind of populist left candidates defined themselves against the Liberal Centre, had no choice but to do that. They couldn't define themselves against the organised communist left because that doesn't really exist. Um, and so they became a kind of lightning rod conducting those sorts of populist energies. Um, but, you know, I mean, do you think that that, uh, I mean, you've just kind of said, you know, that, that that phase has come to an end. Do you think that that analysis of the sorts of political projects that are likely to emerge over the next 10 years, do you think it still, still holds? Or do you think that those, the defeat of those projects, you know, represents something more profound, something that's going to move us on to a kind of different future? Well, I think that we had a shortcut. Um, so traditionally, those of us on the socialist left would say, well, we need to treat elections like they're uh, just um, a temperature gauge, a pressure gauge of um, working class levels of organization, levels of class consciousness and whatever, whatever else. And I think that's very, very, very bastardized uh, a version of what Engels said about about um, about elections. Now, what we tried to do was reverse engineer the process. We said that civil society is so hollowed out. There is no avenue for left advance. There's there's just nothing. And the defeat of politics, the hollowing out of civil society, seems like a problem in an apolitical sense across the political spectrum, but it's really first and foremost a problem of the left because the left needs to galvanize and cohere a mass of people, cohere a social force against the interests of capital, whereas a handful of technocrats can govern capital, capitalism in the interests of, of capital. So the electoral route was a way to use the platform afforded to electoral politics, use a platform that was really the last profound form of political engagement that most people had, especially in a country like the US with extremely low union density and the decline of civic organizations. Politics is really just turning out to vote 
every two years, every four years, to use that avenue to push a program and gain popular support for our ideas, uh, then use our positions of power when we win elections and just that campaign of trying to win the election in the first place to rebuild our organizations and rebuild institutions that can continue uh, the class struggle during uh, lulls. I think fundamentally, the idea that electoral politics is our best avenue to class reformation is still correct. It just seems to me that we're going to make less progress with that strategy in the next few years than we have in the last few years. And it seems to me that there's a need for tactical flexibility. So if you think about Occupy, I thought Occupy was a stupid idea. I was waiting for it to fail. Uh, I was just, it came out of ad busters and it came out of what to me at the time, I was maybe more sectarian then, was just, you know, kind of petty bourgeois, anarchistic, you know, elements, like some of these tactics were used in the UC system, were used in like the new school um, occupations of like libraries at elite universities in the US and and whatever, whatever else. So obviously there was some of it in a broader uh, anti-austerity movement, which actually did have some wider support in the UK and in the US and with the Wisconsin um, uprising in 2011. But the short of it was, I did not expect anything productive to happen out of it, but obviously it was incredibly uh, productive. It, it set into motion, I think, a lot of important things. It showed popular support for economic egalitarianism. Uh, it, it did a hell of a lot. So I don't know what uh, I'm, I'm. I think we need. If I had the answers, I would I would give it to you. But I just think we need an open mind, the spirit of of volunteerism, you know, um, a spirit of of just tactical flexibility while still um, not foregoing the route of running competitive candidates in in elections. The left we managed to build in the US through the Bernie Sanders campaign is a left that has a program that is very popular. And our key policy platforms, the things we're fighting for, uh, do in fact have majority support. Our rhetoric is still not exactly popular, but our program um, is. And we have managed to grow institutions. DSA has grown from five, 6,000 members to approaching 100,000 members. So we don't really have a social base. We're not deeply implanted or rooted in working class uh, communities. But there is a widely accepted and popular kind of producerist uh, rhetoric of you know those who have to work for a living versus those who exist off wealth and in and, and that kind of classically populist way. It just so happens that I think a little bit too much of our coalition is on the professional class side of this equation, but it's definitely fine. And if you look historically at, at, at the process of class formation, if you look at the people who helped build social democracy in the late 19th century, early European social democracy, a lot of these people weren't exactly workers. They were artisans, they were small traders who were failing, they were, you know, from these, these classes that were in turmoil because of the rise of industrial society. And from that base, they came to attract uh, a more traditional proletarian base. So there's still a possibility. I'm not one of those people who just sits around complaining about how middle class everything 
um, is, um, you know, I'm uh, not saying that. I mean, I do dislike these people at a just purely a political, aesthetic, cultural, like you know, level. But but I don't I don't assume that that's political analysis because it really it really isn't. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's that's I I, I think that there's there's still some possibilities um, for sure. Uh, we are on the up. I think in the UK, you could say your your experience is more one of blown opportunities, and that I, I really do think the Corbyn um, uh, period as being the leader of the opposition could have meant a much more uh, sustained transformation of CLPs. It, it could have meant something very, very different. I don't really think we had the opportunity. I think this is, we're living through like the uh, 97th, 98th percentile, what could have happened out of a fringe Vermont senator's two presidential runs. Um, there was actually, there was a really good article that came out in, um, in Damage magazine by George Hoare um, about left populism. And he um, identified the like left populism as presenting itself as an alliance of like these like young, very energetic and um, very educated and probably underemployed like activists um, working alongside older, more traditional working class voters who were um, kind of anti-establishment, anti uh, neoliberalism and kind of like distance from like the establishment parties as well the kind of anti-politics if you like and that left populism in around Corbyn was certainly I think very obviously an alliance of these two groups and um, but I think it's also true um, of Melanchon's campaign and it's definitely true of our own like populist moment in Scotland which was around the 2014 independence referendum I think within those coalitions and in those like three examples in particular, the splits now between those younger kind of lower PMC, if you like, um, younger activists and those older, more traditional working class voters along like culture lines um, is very pronounced. Um, I, I don't think that it's the reason that those projects failed. Um, but I do, I do wonder, like, who now takes forward left populist projects when there is such a distance growing between, like, these two groups that were once an alliance around left populist projects in the aftermath of the, the populist moment, if you like. And I just wondered if you thought that that might be a problem um, following the election of, of Biden. Can I just add one little thing to that, which is in the British case, um, I mean, by 2019, the the Labour Party coalition had become more middle class. So the, 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 the biggest loss of votes in um, on Labour's part were in, I think, among D&E voters. It's a rubbish kind of scale. It's consumer index or whatever. It's not real kind of class. But that, you know, D&E is, is more or less kind of like poorer manual skilled and scare quotes uh, workers. Um, now that obviously, I mean, there was a few factors obviously in, in the reason that Corbynism failed in, in 2019, but the, the central issue I would argue was over the European question. Um, and it, it's 
it's interesting that um, you know Corbyn is a man, Syriza, um, who you know the two big European uh, attempts at this kind of left populist um, approach, both essentially impaled themselves on the same thing, which was the national question. And social democracy traditionally, you know, whether that's now or, or in the 30s or 40s, has had a torrid time with the national question. I think this is a big difference with the American experience because naturally America being the heartlands of the world system, its national questions are very different. I'm not saying they don't have them, of course they do, but you know, it's very different to a situation like Europe where there are institutions like the European Union <clears throat> and so on. Um, I mean, do you think that the national question is a, is, was a major failing of this model? So uh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. I, I should say that I um, to speak to Kat's um, uh, what Kat was talking about. I recently read or reread um, that Fabian Society uh, pamphlet from the early '90s, Southern Discomfort, and it seemed to me one of the ironies of the last uh, the December 2019 election was that in many ways, the Corbyn coalition was the coalition that New Labour wanted to, to build in the sense that it was young, cosmopolitan, dynamic, um, where the shifts were starting to go geographically. Obviously, they didn't do enough to actually win um, win um, in, in, in the South. But if you, if you look at just the vote patterns of, of, of where the votes were, were, were shifting, and I think there's a the mainstream of the Democratic Party under Biden has really, um, not really under Biden, Biden's continued this process. If anything, his rhetoric has been slightly better at, in, in certain ways, but has doubled down on the wealthier suburbanites as the pathway to, um, to victory. And the idea that certain demographics are declining and, um, and that these declining traditional working class demographics won't win you uh, elections. So in the U.S., first of all, this is wrong, just even at the at the political level because of the the way the U.S. system works geographically. Um, the Democrats' voters being concentrated in cities and and uh, suburbs of large cities is is going to spell um, doom to them. Uh, but I think in other countries and contexts, uh, it's a potential uh, outgrowth of a focus on left populism through elections. So in other words, if all votes are equal, then why wouldn't you pick up two votes from young people in cities, uh, large cities, um, at the expense of um, one vote in a middle-sized city somewhere uh, somewhere else, uh, where, which is obviously just very different from the traditional socialist focused on social weight and social base. So the idea that while certain people actually matter more, not obviously in a moral sense, but in a strategic sense, because the base, let's say, uh, the left traditionally has had on longshore workers uh, implies a lot of social power. They could call strikes. They could do lots of, of other things that ordinary uh, people can't do that we can't do, right? If we stop writing or, or podcasting tomorrow, like I think there'll be many upset people, but it will not be enough to uh, to change po any political um, calculus. And I think that's one potential danger of the drift from a kind of left electoralism 
a left electoral politics and route to class reformation can easily become an electoralism that sees votes as the end goal in and of itself and traps us to kind of a prism of what's what's possible. I think in general, one other potential disadvantage of the left's base being disproportionately middle class is there stands to be, I think, at least in the US, a gross overstatement of uh, bigotries and other things in the actual existing working class. I think at least in the US, in my experience in in the UK, uh, well, in, 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 uh, in um, England at least, um, I um, think that obviously, there's still lots of, of oppression everywhere in society, but people are in general small p progressives. Like they're getting more progressive on a lot of these issues. There's in general a live and let live kind of mentality yeah. where people, you know, don't want their views kind of forced upon them. It's not like anyone's actually trying to force anything upon them, but they but they in the abstract don't want that. But they also just generally are are libertarians in a sense of just like being fine now with gay marriage, being fine with, with interracial marriage, all these other things that were previously taboo are no longer. Yet somehow in the left's mind, the traditional working class is totally and irredeemably racist and homophobic and whatever else. Now, to begin with, one, the working class and, and a lot of these, uh, lot, lots of parts of the world I would suspect is in fact more diverse um, in terms of, of racial um, demographics than other classes. And also probably when it comes to um, a gender too, just if only because um, there are more women in the workforce and at the higher echelons of, of elite universities and things like that, I, am, I imagine in most places are still male dominated, but even, even besides for, for all those, those facts, these are people who are often living, at least in the United States, in less segregated areas. So if you're a poor white person in the uh, South, for instance, you're much more likely to have a black neighbor and to have friends and acquaintances and to go to integrated school than if you're a um, suburbanite if, in, in a, in a uh, uh, wealthy public school district in the um, United States. Um, and, you know, so I, I think there's this false dichotomy we're given, which is, oh, well, we really want to win over these voters and to speak in a rhetoric that appeals to them, but we don't want to compromise on our progressive social views, where the fact is no one's asking you to, to do that. You know, no, no one's asking you to, to all of a sudden embrace forms of oppression because it's politically viable, because in fact, uh, on the whole, it's not politically viable. And it's not what voters are asking for. They're asking for a rhetorical emphasis and focus on economic egalitarian issues, uh, not a um, sort of betrayal of, of left-wing values on anything else. Yeah, I agree. I think people are generally quite relaxed on, on social issues. Like that's always been my experience is that there's this um, like, demonization a lot of parts of the left of the working class as somehow like um unreconstructed like bigots this is a weird fetish that like parts of like the liberal 
left to have about what working people actually think which I mean you're right especially like in the states or in like London it's predominantly not white the working class and it's predominantly women um I think that you know generally people are pretty chill my my, my anecdote is that my family's from Trinidad so I do have some family in the the UK because you know our wave of immigration was mostly within the commonwealth before you know the 80s and then after after that to the to the US and the most fortunate recent demographic straight to, to Canada, uh, where they have both healthcare and they are not in the UK. So um, they uh, my, my, my cousins, at least, um, at least two of them uh, in the UK voted for Brexit on all sorts of like, not very thought out. Um, you know, they like Corbyn too, but not very thought out kind of way, uh, ways. Uh, but it was just a healthy reminder for me at the time that the coalition was not quite this coalition yeah. of the far right as it was depicted, wherever you come down on it. I, I do think that the issues of, of nationalism and uh, comes out a lot in in the UK um, um, context. Uh, and I think on that issue, it's, it's more just a tactical question um, where I think if the debate becomes polarized on who loves America the most or who loves Britain the most, then obviously the right is going to win. So we don't want the debate polarized around those issues because because intrinsically as, as socialists, we don't believe that a um, American life is worth more than a Mexican life or a Scottish life is worth more than an Irish life. It's just like on, on that issue, if the debate becomes polarized around flag waving, we will lose. Um, so that's 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 one reason not to not to just sidestep it. I mean, to be honest, you're you're hitting on like what has been a major problem for the, I mean, I'll call it the British left, but I mean the English left for a long time. Um, and it's the the fact that they have actually always been quite terrified of Englishness. So I've like routinely met uh, you know, excellent socialists in England who would rather like be part of a British left, um, which is always really code for for English left even if being British means invading other countries for oil um or the empire or whatever like they would rather identify as being part of the great British left um than than being English and actually like I think that this has caused a massive problem for the Labour Party in particular um, just a few hours before we started recording the podcast and um, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party just resigned they are like you know so far behind in the polls in Scotland and this is after you know like 150 years of Scotland always just returning Labour votes like <laughs> I live in Glasgow and for hundreds of years we've elected Labour politicians and like the national question particularly for the Labour Party has become like it's it's where a lot of the fault lines lie now. So I'm asking because I'm, I'm largely um, ignorant of this but I think in part for the Labour Party wouldn't the issue though be that if they just accept that they're a uh, English and maybe Welsh um, party, they they just can't win the yeah, can't win majorities? Sure, but like they're all they've already lost Scotland. I mean, I I suppose I mean like there's just always been like a squeamishness about um, England as a nation um, amongst the the Labour left. I, um, I think I, it I, th I think I in part it's it's a hype. Just to give you an example, like there was a um, a now infamous tweet from Emily Thornberry, the Labour MP, 
um, where she took a photograph of um, a white, I think it was, it was maybe during like the EU referendum um, and she took a photograph of like a driveway that had a white van in it and an England flag flying out the window and she took a photo and put it on Twitter and, and said something like look at what our country's become do you know what I mean so there, it's not just like an uncomfortableness it's like a real disdain for this Englishness which I think has meant that like national English consciousness has really like I mean it's, they've just ceded a lot of ground to the right yeah, and I guess there's almost like, I see it a lot with the German left too, where it's a anti-nationalism that's essentially a hyper-nationalism, because they're like, yes. you know, if, if English nationalism ever makes a comeback, the whole world is getting conquered again. I'm like, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> like, you'll you'll be lucky to to win round two against um, Argentina if it, if it comes down to it nowadays. <laughs> but I, I think I think that's, you know, that's... Uh, uh, often a, a part of the, the the roots to it. But again, I, I think, yeah, I think it's a little bit tricky in part because um, because I, I'm not sure how permeable Englishness as an identity is to, um, to immigrants and to uh, minorities in the way that, let's say, um, Americanism is in part because of the original sin of America being a settler uh, colony. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so, uh, I, yeah, I think, I think it leads to a thorny set of questions, but at the very least the left can't be, um, immediately hostile to displays of, of nationalism, even if it's not going to embrace it, uh, it, it itself. Uh, but I, again, I think the real goal should be to downplay it as much as, as possible to just foreground other other issues and to make, let's say, immigration or make patriotism even uh, the number four, number five priority and what voters care about in candidates and, and hope that they'll vote for you anyway because of your anti-austerity platform and, and defense of the NHS and, and whatever else. One of the um, strange things uh, about that, that fear of England and Englishness is that even more so than in the American case that you were talking about, Bashkar, like England is one of the most socially liberal countries in the Western world by quite a distance. The UK is one of the countries that is the most accepting of immigration, for example, in the Western world, certainly in, in Europe. We have traditionally one of the weakest far rights. You know, the, you know obviously in the middle of the last century, most of continental Europe was dominated by um, fascist governments, which had either come to power under their own, uh, you know, under their own fuel, or they had were, were uh, you know, subject to invasion by a fascist power and had domestic fascist elements elevated, like in France. Um, and 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 Britain's never had that, you know, as strong a, a fascist tradition. It's had fascist traditions, but not anything like that powerful. Uh, and also, you know, it's one of the most sort of atheistic, secularized countries in the world. Uh, our national, uh, I said almost said our national church, my national church is the Church of Scotland, but the Anglican Church is one of the most liberal congregations in the world. I mean, it's not even comparable to the United States, where the conservative movement in the US has real institutional heft, you know, to, to, to pull on as there is a real religious movement in the US and churches and seminaries and publishers and radios and, you know, uh, radio stations and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's nothing even like that in the UK. I mean, um, the UK is, uh, 
well, with the, with the partial exception of Northern Ireland, I should say, but England, Wales, and Scotland, uh, it's one of the most, <laughs> like liberal politics is utterly hegemonic here in Scotland. Um, we have a parliament with six, lib with six uh, liberal parties, including the supposedly centre-right party, which is really, on most policy terms, indistinguishable from the, the kind of centrist liberal governing um, Scottish National Park. I wonder to what extent that's because of the weakness of the workers' movement, right? <laughs> the reason why you didn't get fascism, the reason why liberalism reigns uh, supreme is really never be because they never had to violently suppress the, the workers' movement like they did in other countries in, in Europe. I, I think that's I think that's really part of it. I also think it's it's probably deeper in a certain tradition of um, the managed decline of the British Empire. Uh, like the British Empire, David Edison writes about that this in his um, new book, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation. Like the British state has uh, been extremely good at managing its own decline from you know top dog status to a subordinate of the United States. In many countries, that becomes like an explosive, chaotic um, condition. And at times in Britain, it threatened to do that, you know, with like this, uh, the, the, the war in Northern Ireland, the so-called troubles in the 70s, there was, there was a militant workers movement and so on. It had moments where it looked like that could break out. But for the most part, up to the present day, Britain's had a really easy slide from uh, from the top and and you know has maintained that famous cohesion uh, that the British state and the British ruling elite have been able to cultivate for you know centuries um, so yeah it's an interesting one but it makes it even more peculiar that the the left I mean you know in, in various parts of Britain but perhaps you know particularly in England is so terrified of like you know the flag of St George um, uh, as an image and, and what it might represent. And you were right, and you know, like, uh, you know, people saying, you know, like the anti-Deutsch in Germany have this idea that, had this idea at the time of the reunification of Germany, that if this happened, it would be like Hitler all over again. You had people saying of Brexit, if we leave the European Union, it's going to be, quotes, British Empire 2.0. And you're sort of like, that can't happen. What, what are we going to do, invade India, invade China? But, you know, which which rising Asian power would you like to kick our asses uh, first? So, yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really strange one. But see, on this point about the limitations of social democracy as a tradition, I mean, it became really apparent with Labourism, uh, including under Jeremy Corbyn. Of course, Corbyn's a traditional Eurosceptic. Yeah, he's, a, he's an anti-EU socialist, as far as can be told from his criticisms of the Maastricht Treaty and so on in the past. But because he became the leader of the Labour Party, he had little choice but to, you know, be a leading member of the Remain campaign. And, you know, up to a certain point, uh, you know, that, that made sense tactically for, for him to do that. I mean, I don't agree with it, but I can see the position that, that he was in. But even once that campaign was over and Leaf had won and so on, um, the institutional pressures just kept building and building on him to concede to this disastrous people's vote stance and so on but some of those pressures were just simply the fact that it was as it were the British state's position to stay in the European Union the British state was one of the architects of the European Union the the real elite interests in the country didn't want to leave and that put severe pressure on Corbynism at a time when the Tory party couldn't be relied on to play its traditional role as the spokesperson of the British ruling elite that put massive pressure on Corbyn.
And also one thing that I think that a lot of the the people advocating remain or or a people's vote position from a purely tactical standpoint, um, that that group, what I think they've misunderstood is that once a center left party loses its heartland, it becomes almost impossible for it to get it back. And then you end up in the same sort of spiral that the French Socialist Party is in that um, center-left parties across across Europe have have entered into. So it'd be better to lose with while maintaining your your traditional uh, core constituents than to narrowly win a minority government. I guess that was the best case scenario in December um, 2019 with the base and with coalition partners that don't want social democracy, don't want what you what you uh, want. But I think this gets us to the broader question of a left that has leaders and that has certain ideas that are programmatically socialist, but divorced from any of the traditional base of uh, socialism. So in other words, the dilemma of mid-century social democracy was something of the, the opposite, in which you had leaders not committed to socialism. You had a ideology that was in name only committed to any sort of rupture with capitalism, and even after 59 in, in, in Germany and, and, and elsewhere, not even programmatically committed to, to socialism, uh, but you had the social base right there. So it became easy for the revolutionary left to say, well, there's a group of workers who are in the main voting for parties committed in name to socialism or who are at least traditionally had those those commitments uh, but these parties are pursuing a road that's not going to lead there they're uh, because of structural constraints or or timidity or whatever else they're just managing uh, capitalism it's going to provoke a backlash and that leaves an opening for the radical um, left uh, but here we are where both the center left and by extension the far left are kind of swimming without without a uh, a base um in a and that's again that gets back to the question of of class reformation being the primary uh, goal of what i guess uh, miliband would call marxist reformism which i think should be the stance of everyone on the left not because we'll immediately be able to deliver um huge gains to, to working people, but because it'll help restore the basis uh, from which we can actually start doing politics again. Uh, I think that's a good place to uh, stop, Bashkar. Thanks very much, because uh, it, otherwise it would have been the beginning of a really interesting <laughs> conversation that could go on for another couple hours. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for, for those thoughts and thanks very much for all the work you do with Jacobin and so on. I think it's a great resource. Uh, it's a great read. Um, and yeah, it would be great to, to speak to you again in the future, assuming you, of course, you still have your democratic rights in America uh, and the, uh, the fascists don't, uh, you know, take full control and so on. The threat to democratic rights or civil liberties is actually from Joe Biden, of course, but let's, let's not open up that <laughs> discussion at this point. You know, if, if I uh, have to go into exile, uh, it would be Cuba first, um, but I would settle for a independent Scotland as a as a distant second choice to to tropical uh, a paradise in Cuba. Oh, that's poor, nice. poor choice though. Terrible I mean, go, idea, mate. Go for Cuba. Do Cuba. <laughs> yeah.
it's measurable <laughs> over here. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. I will just we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, see thanks you. for having me. Yep. See you later. All right.